right? So uh, today we conclude this series on the doctrine of sin. Uh, and honestly, it's been a joy being a part of it. And my prayer is that the Lord has used it uh, to serve this church and, and for the sake of his purposes. Um, and I can honestly say I've benefited much even in the preparation of it, uh, just having that opportunity to dig deeply into this subject. So I'm thankful to God for that. Now, most of us have experienced moments of anxiously waiting on results for something. And usually the person with the results would come to you and say, so, you want the good news first or the bad news first? Which usually means that it's pretty much all bad news. Uh, But in, in this series of the doctrine of sin, even though we began with the bad news first, Right, the the uh, topic of sin. The good news that follows it actually does outweigh the bad news uh, by a milestone. In fact, the bad news of sin is really just the backdrop of the glorious good news. And this good news, which I'm going to be speaking about today, is the present and final triumph over sin. Uh, And as you already know, we've been pulling from the Westminster Shorter Catechism questions. And I want us to look first at the uh, Catechism question number 20 and 21. So let's look here. Uh, Question 20. It says, Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? And the answer? God, solely out of his love and mercy from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life and entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. And then the following question, uh, question number 21, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And the answer The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever. So, here we see that God did not leave us alone in this state of sin. He, out of his love and mercy, has made a way of redemption through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to talk about that. But before I get into the study, I want to start by saying this, that I've noticed that often in popular Christianity, especially here in the West, we have a tendency of reducing the whole of Christian theology, or the whole Christian faith, really, into one theme, which is, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And although that question is very important, it tends to overlook what God is doing in heaven and on earth for the sake of his glorious name. And so with this topic of the present and the final triumph of sin, I hope to discuss uh, some of the detail of this triumphant victory. And of course, the triumphant king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to do this with three points. Okay, if you look at your Uh, handouts, you'll see the points listed there. Point number one, which I'm going to talk about now, is the triumph of the cross. Okay, so we're going to talk about that first. Then we're going to get into point number two, which is the triumph of the resurrection. 
And then point number three, the triumph of God's kingdom. Okay, so the triumph of the cross, the triumph of the resurrection, and the triumph of God's kingdom. Let's look at point number one, the triumph of the cross. So by triumph of the cross, what I mean is all that entails what was accomplished in the life of Christ all the way to the point of his death on the cross. Now as we look at this, you'll see that this triumph of the cross was a real victory for us as fallen creatures of God. Of course, if we receive these benefits, and we know we receive them by faith. So I want to go ahead and list at least five core things that Christ accomplished on the cross for us. So number one uh, is expiation. Okay, so Christ accomplished on the cross expiation. And that word expiation means the removal of our sin and guilt. In other words, it's the cancellation of our sin debt before God. On the cross, Christ's death removes and it expiates our sin and guilt. Let's look at this verse uh, in scripture, um, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Let's take a look at that. And it says here, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here we see that the guilt of our sin was taken away from us and placed on the cross. I'm sorry, on Christ, uh, who discharged it by his death on the cross. Okay, You also see the same thing uh, in John 1.29, when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, that concept of taking away the sin is this uh, idea of expiation. So let's look at that verse. Uh, John 1.29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, so you see that idea of the removal of sin or the taking away of sin, and that's expiation. Uh, And there's other verses like Isaiah 53, 6 that says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Okay, so it's removing it from us and being placed on another, which we know is Christ Jesus. Also in Hebrews 9, 26, it says, He has been manifested to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. So we see that concept of putting away sin, uh, that removal of sin, which um, we know is expiation. So Jesus takes away, that is, he expiates our sin, and he does this on the cross. Number two, um, another act that we see accomplished on the cross is propitiation. Okay, that word propitiation Uh, Where expiation refers to the removal of our sins, propitiation refers to the removal of God's wrath. Okay, we see this in Ephesians 2.3. Let's take a look at that. Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our, our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body uh, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there in that passage, before we get into propitiation, first we see that uh, by nature, all mankind uh, were uh, children of wrath. Okay, we were by nature children of wrath. But God solves this problem by sending his son to be the wrath absorber, right? Taking the wrath upon himself, which we see here in uh, Romans three twenty three to 25. And it reads like this. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. So you see that word propitiation there uh, in that passage. And again, by dying in our place for our sins, Christ removes this wrath of God, or in other words, he removes the anger or the fury, that opposition from God that was towards us and, and that we justly deserved. In fact, it even goes further. And here, here's the beauty of propitiation that, we ought, that ought to cause us to worship uh, every time we think about it. So God's, propiti- God's propitiation is not simply some sacrifice that causes God to stop being angry towards us. This is a sacrifice that uniquely removes uh, God's wrath towards us, but it also turns it into favor. Okay, so uh, Christ dying on the cross, taking the wrath of God for us as this propitiation happens, uh, God's disposition towards us goes from wrath to favor. And, and by that, that should cause us to, to worship God. Now, here's a, here's a side note. His act of propitiation doesn't turn his wrath into love necessarily uh, because we know, uh, we know that God already loved us Right? which is the reason why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die. We see that in 1 John 4.10 uh, that says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, in other words, God uh, had wrath and anger towards us because we were in a state of sin or unforgiven sin. Uh, yet, in his... Uh, divine, mysterious choosing before the foundation of the world, God chose to place love on us. And therefore, he sent his son to be the propitiation. Um, and, and by that, the wrath that he had uh, upon us because of our sin, and rightly so, it's changed and it's it's removed and it becomes favor towards us. So we see that this all began by God loving us first. However, this great act of love through propitiation, uh, it turns his wrath into favor so that his love may be demonstrated to us, doing good to us every day, in all things, forever, right? Without it conflicting with his divine justice and holiness. 
So because of this, God now treats us as sons, right? All things are always working together for our good, right? That's a whole different disposition. Um, And again, this is all towards those who are in Christ, those whom he sets his love on um, and acts as a propitiation for. And this is amazing. And we we ought to thank God that he sent his son for us. Uh, Because if we think about it, uh, and we analyze ourselves uh, in all honesty, there's really nothing about us that deserved uh, this kind of love. Why would he send his son to be the propitiation for us? Um, that just blows my mind all the time. But again, this is, a, this is amazing. This doctrine of propitiation ought to cause us to worship. Uh, and it's, it's one thing for God to forgive sinners, but it's quite another thing to bestow blessings and favor upon them after forgiving them, especially since we were all once his enemies. And so this is a deep uh, doctrine. It's, it's important for us to think about um, as we think about what was accomplished on the, on the cross by Christ. The next point is reconciliation. So what was accomplished by Christ on the cross was reconciliation. Whereas expiation refers to the removal of our sins, propitiation refers to the removal of God's wrath. Now, reconciliation refers to the removal of our alienation from God, our separation from God. So because of our sins, we were all alienated or separated from God. Christ's death removed this alienation and therefore reconciled us to God. Uh, We see this, for example, in Romans 5, 10 through 11. Let's take a look at that. It says here, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, and there's that word, reconciliation. Okay, so, uh, and, and, and before I go deep into it, there's so many wonderful implications of this subject of reconciliation that I wish I had time to cover. So I'm just going to briefly mention some of the benefits and some of the good things that come out of the fact that we've been reconciled with God. Our reconciliation with God means that we who were once alienated or far off are now brought near. And this reminds me of Paul's letter uh, to the Gentiles uh, in Ephesians 2, 12, 13, which says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near And this is it right here. Uh, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so you see here what was accomplished by Christ's death on the cross is this reconciliation, is this bringing near to God that we did not have prior to um, this incident on the cross with Christ uh, being our... Uh, 
atoning sacrifice to bring us and God together once again. So we as outsiders have been called by God to draw near to him in Christ. And again, through this act of reconciliation, we now have that privilege to commune with the creator of the universe, which is amazing. And again, this is another thing that ought to cause us to to worship. Okay, another point of what was accomplished on the cross was redemption. So our sins placed us in what we would call captivity, from which we needed to be delivered. And the, the price that is paid to deliver someone from captivity is often called ransom. And you see these terms a lot in the scriptures. So when we say that Christ's death accomplished redemption for us, we mean that it accomplished deliverance from our captivity through the payment of a price. Now in the scriptures we basically see three things that we've been released from. Number one, we've been released or we've been redeemed, which is the word that we're using here. We've been redeemed from, number one, the curse of the law. Number two, the guilt of sin. And number three, the power of sin. So Christ redeems us from each of these, okay? Um, you'll see in Galatians three thirteen through 14, speaks uh, clearly on this redemption from the curse of the law. Let's go ahead and read that. Galatians three thirteen through 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that there you see clearly that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. Again, the second one is that Christ redeems us from the guilt of our sin. You see that clearly spoken in Romans 3.24, which, re- which reads, And are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that term there, justification, or, or actually he uses the term justified by his grace, is this act of the uh, redemption from our guilt of sin that we first inherited through Adam and also through our corrupt nature in Adam, producing the sin of our own. And again, this, this verse here shows that we've been justified, that we've been cleared and redeemed from our guilt of sin. And then the third point I mentioned is that Christ redeemed us from the power of, of sin. You see that in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, which reads, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So note that we are not simply redeemed from the guilt of sin, right? We are redeemed from the power of sin, which means that our slavery to sin is broken. We're now free to live to righteousness. So our redemption from the power of sin is then the basis of our ability to live holy lives. And we also read in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20, 
that uh, it says that you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. So again, it's just a reminder that in this, on the cross, um, Christ purchased for us a redemption, redeeming us from the curse of the law, the guilt of our sin, but also from the power of sin, which now allows us to freely uh, submit to the law of God and live in obedience to uh, the law of God and, and to glorify God with our bodies and, and with our um, members. And then the last point I'll mention that was um, purchased on the cross by Christ was this uh, act of substitution. Uh, so actually, let me take that back. It wasn't purchased. This is something that was performed for us. So this term substitution is this idea that someone stood in our place. And the reality of substitution is actually the heart of the triumph of the cross. So all the benefits that I just listed, uh, Jesus Christ accomplished them all by being that substitute, by dying in our place. That is, uh, by dying instead of us. We were supposed to be the ones paying for our sin. And the reality is that we, uh, if we would have paid for our sins, it would have taken an eternity for us to pay for it. And we would deserve every torturous moment in hell as a payment. And yet Jesus took it all. He took the full load upon himself instead of us. And that's the heart of substitution. Jesus Christ stood in our place. As Isaiah says, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see that in Isaiah 53, uh, verses 5 and 6. So substitution is the means in which Jesus accomplishes what I mentioned before, the expiation, the propitiation, uh, reconciliation in, in that redemption for us. This was, all this was all accomplished for us because of this act of substitution, Jesus uh, standing in our place. Uh, here, here is a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, I think that verse um, perfectly paints the picture of what this looks like, this act of substitution. Him being sin, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. Another verse, 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So by his wounds, you have been healed. So again, this triumph of the cross of Christ is the key factor in God's ultimate plan of reversing the effects of sin that we spoke about throughout this teaching series. And of course, this is the key point in which we see God defeating sin itself. 
by Jesus being the sin bearer, many are being made clean. And by this, God spreads his kingdom through his people by the power of the gospel. This act that God has done in history is the good news that we we ought to be spreading throughout the world, enhancing the kingdom of God. Uh, because this is uh, where uh, the, scripture, the scriptures tell us that the power of God lies in. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the triumph of the cross. Now let's go ahead and look at point number two um, in the handout. And point number two is the triumph of the resurrection. So this, the uh, triumph of the resurrection, I would say, is the great turning point in all of history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all may be familiar with the events of the resurrection from Scripture, but the question is, and the question that we ought to be thinking about is, what exactly is the big deal about the resurrection? What makes this even a triumph? And there are many things to say about the resurrection that show it to be a great triumph. But with respect to the doctrine of sin, I want to bring to our, te- uh, to our attention 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. Let's look at that verse. Uh, it says here, And if Christ has not been risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So again, we see the relationship with this this resurrection and how it relates to um, whether you're still in your sins or not. So by this verse, we see that the resurrection assures us of our justification. If Christ were still in the tomb, it would mean God's wrath was not satisfied and we would still stand guilty before God. Now, it's not that the resurrection accomplishes our justification, right? Jesus' sinless life and sin-bearing death did that. But rather, it assures us of our justification. It was God, the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. We see that in Romans 8, 11. And by that act, God declared that Christ's atoning sacrifice has been accepted. The penalty for our sins was paid in full. So the resurrection was God's declaration that he had canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. And again, death could not hold him. Okay, And we, we, we see that obviously through the resurrection. But think about that for a second. Death could not hold him? Why? Because we see in scripture that death is only the punishment for those who have sinned. And we see here in this verse, in Romans 6.23, A, just the beginning part of it, says that for the wages of sin is death. So again, this is just, uh, this is an example uh, that shows us that death is really a punishment for those who have sinned. But if you think about it, the scripture also says that Christ was sinless. Right? You see that in 1 Peter 2.22, which says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet, we we see here in scripture, it's recorded, that he did die. So how can this be? 
Well, there are two things that we have to see from this. That if he did die, then he must have been carrying the sins of others upon himself. Right? And we know that he was basically taking the blame. He was our substitute. And so if he did die, he was carrying sin. But we know from the scriptures that he was carrying the sin of others upon himself. He was sinless, but he was carrying the sins of others upon himself, which is the reason why he did see death and he did meet death. And if he was sinless, then it can't be possible for death to hold him. And we see that both of these things were true for Jesus. Jesus both died and was also not held by death. And it proved to be true, right? Three days later, when we see Jesus Christ rise from the dead. Acts 2.24 uh, says, God raised him up, losing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So not only do we see that God accepted his death as a sacrifice for our sins, we also see that Jesus also defeats death. Right? This is a great victory. And again, this, is, this too is a benefit for all of us who are in Christ. Right? We know that sin has been defeated and we benefit from that by being in Christ. But we also see that death has been defeated, which is the ultimate punishment, ultimate payment for sin. And that too has been defeated in Christ, by Christ. And we see that in the resurrection. So for us, Jesus then becomes the access to a real triumph over both sin and death as well. Let's look at a verse here, Romans 6, 5. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What a great verse. We are, we are now partakers of this new creation, right? This is something that Jesus accomplished for us. He's bringing forth new creation. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He resurrected into newness of life. And now us, by faith, we're partakers with Christ in this new creation, right? Jesus Christ is uh, now bringing forth this new creation, and it began with this resurrection. This is a reestablishing of what God originally designed from the beginning in the garden. Jesus being a new Adam, or rather the last ultimate Adam, and all who are in him will be partakers of this new creation in which Jesus Christ himself is the first fruits. This is a real victory for us. This is a real victory for those who are in Christ. This is a real victory of the victory that we see um, opening up um, this uh, new heaven and new earth that we long for. Um, a, a place, a time where there will be no sin and no death. And we see Jesus being the first fruits of this. Defeating death and defeating sin. Uh, rising up into newness of life. And us as Christians, by faith, uh, being united with Christ, will also be a part of this 
um, resurrection one day. Um, and we're receiving the benefits of it now uh, by faith. We, we, we have the ability to kill sin. And, and we have that hope that after the grave, we too will resurrect like him. This is a real victory and triumph of the resurrection. Now let's look at the last point in the handout. Last point here is the triumph of God's kingdom. So finally, the, the triumph of God's kingdom is not a triumph gained by means of people or even by people directly. This is a means in which is accomplished by Christ himself. We see in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9, that Jesus prays, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is a kingdom that Christ himself has started and will complete on behalf of his people. But as we see this uh, prayer in Matthew 6, 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The question that we should be asking ourselves when we see this is, will God the Father answer this prayer? Will his kingdom come? And will his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, your answer better be a resounding yes. God will uh, bring forth this uh, prayer into realization. God's kingdom will come. And to be honest, I believe that God's kingdom has come in an already and not yet kind of way. And here's where we can discuss not only the final triumph over sin, but the very present triumph over sin. See, the presence of God's kingdom in this age is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of believers and the reigning presence of Christ in his body. We see the presence of God's kingdom in the church as they increasingly reflect his love and obey his laws, serving God and neighbor and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to all. Likewise, as heaven experiences the perfect will of God, we on earth have received God's revealed will through the scriptures, in which the Holy Spirit is actively conforming us to more and more. And these are present realities. However, there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are not yet fully consummated. I love the parable uh, Jesus says regarding the kingdom of heaven that we see in Matthew thirteen thirty one through 33. And it says here, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three mustard I'm sorry, in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. 
So here we see the progressive nature of the kingdom of God having small beginnings like a mustard seed until it grows in its fullness. And in the second parable, we see the metaphor of leaven to symbolize the hidden uh, permeation of the kingdom of heaven in this world. So the kingdom is indeed active, even though it isn't fully realized, because it begins with the inner transformation of the hearts of men. We see in the parable that three measures was probably about 39 liters of flour that when ready would have probably produced enough flour to feed 100 people. Right? So, uh, again, this is, a, this is a, an example of what the kingdom of God it actually is. In the not yet aspects of the kingdom, we will eventually see the fullness of the reign of Christ in its final form when Christ returns in power and in great glory. But again, this is the great triumph of the kingdom of God that, number one, Christ has defeated sin, that Christ has defeated death, and that Christ has been seated at the right hand of the Father, already ruling over his kingdom that has already been inaugurated. See, Christ's entire life of obedience, atoning death, resurrection, and ascension, are all the means by which he inaugurated the kingdom of God and which we are already benefiting from, and that will eventually come to its fullest realization. So as we conclude this study on the doctrine of sin, I hope this has served as a reminder of who achieves the victory in the end, right? And we know that the victory is achieved by Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who stood in our place and has defeated our enemies. So let us trust only in Him, because He is the only one worthy for such a task. May you remember sin's end and death's final defeat, especially when you're struggling with your own indwelling sin. And may you be strengthened by the truth of the gospel, which tells of the future hope that has been guaranteed for us in Christ Jesus. And so with that, I'll close with a promise that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. And it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected under him, I'm sorry, to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. And uh, to that we say, Amen. Uh, we long to see the day that all things would be subjected to him, and placed under his feet. And we see that it already started. Christ has already um, attained victory and sealed these things that we benefit from um, through the cross 
and through the victory of the resurrection and through the kingdom that has already been brought down. So we long to see when the fullness of it uh, is complete and to that we we keep hope um, and we hope not in something that um, is not guaranteed, but we hope in something that we can be assured is guaranteed. Um, for God, in his past, has always kept his promises. Um, we long for the day that uh, sin is done away with completely, and we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, um, experiencing that perfect fellowship with our Creator. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, having us go through this uh, subject of the doctrine of sin. Um, thank you for helping us to see the reality of sin and what it has cost and what it has done in this world that you've created. But Father, we know that the scriptures say that you are sovereign and you've always been in control. And nothing has been outside of your control. And before the foundation of the world, you have already set the solution for these um, evils. And Father, we see this solution, this triumph over sin and over death. And we see this triumph in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to live to die, to resurrect, and to ascend. And He is Lord over all things, seated at the right hand of the Father. And Father, we thank You for this present and final triumph over sin, which we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that we would live in light of these truths, that we would live with the reality of this uh, victory that was accomplished in Christ. And we would hold fast to your word. We would hold fast to your law. But most importantly, that we would hold fast to the gospel that is the good news of this victory. That without it, we, we too would be dead in our sins, unforgiven, and left alienated. And our only hope um, would be none apart from Christ, and our future destiny would be eternal separation and damnation. So thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, the true victor. Say this in Jesus' name. Amen.